When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to an archived episode of our 2017 Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. Inside the board's All Audio QBank is the only board's preparation resource that allows you to study on the go and doesn't cost you any extra time during your Step 1 dedicated prep time. Go to the link in the show notes or insidetheboards.com to learn more. Podcast listeners can get a discount on a subscription to our All Audio QBank. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout for 25% off. In addition, we are currently throwing in an ad-free version of our 2017 Study Smarter series as our thank you gift. The Step 1 version of the QBank is powered by questions from Osmosis and Lecturio, which have been optimized for audio listening and learning. Thanks to all who support us by purchasing a subscription to the All Audio QBank. It helps us continue to produce this podcast for free for you. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome back to the Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. Today's guest is Eli Fryman, who is the Associate Director for Tutor Development and Medical Education for Med School Tutors. Uh, MedSchoolTutors.com is the leading company providing one-on-one tutoring to medical students, preparing for their USMLE, Comlex, shelf exams, coursework, pretty much anything related to medical education. Uh, Eli himself is a pediatrics resident at Boston Children's Hospital and has provided over 750 hours of tutoring with med school tutors and probably not necessarily professionally the most interesting, but at least what I can find from their website, your go-to karaoke song is Lose Yourself, <laughs> Eminem. Eli, thanks for taking the time to uh, do a little hemonk learning with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me on Inside the Boards. We so much appreciate it. The stuff that you guys do is incredible, and we're happy to collaborate on this. Yeah, absolutely. So what got you into medical education? Why did you decide to become a tutor with uh, med school tutors? I think one of the things that's unbelievable about working with med school tutors is the feeling that you get when you work with a student who comes to you struggling with the USMLE or their shelf exams or their coursework, and then seeing them succeed. There's something about medicine where teaching is just intrinsic to the value system that so many of us hold because taking good care of patients not only involves the work that you do, but the work that you help others do for those patients. And I think teaching is a core part of that. I got involved in my fourth year of medical school, as most people who are listening to this are probably aware, the fourth year is not exactly the heaviest year in medical school. (laughs) And I recognized as a fourth year medical student that I really enjoyed mentoring some of the third year students who are just getting onto the wards about how to be a successful clinician. 
Yeah. And I figured that in my free time during my fourth year, I would try to not only uh, leverage that interest into uh, something a little bit more formal, but also at the same time, sharpen my own medical knowledge, because they say that there's no way to learn something better than teaching it yourself. So I think that that's actually helped me a lot as I've transitioned into being a resident at Children's. There's no doubt that the things that I teach during my tutoring sessions, I'm sharp on on rounds the next day. And the things that you feel like you teach are then the things that become your strengths. But all that aside, there's nothing better than seeing one of your students succeed. Someone who came to you scoring in the 150s, 170s, you get that email a couple months later that they scored a 240 on the exam. And then a couple months after that, they matched into their dream residency. Really not much better. Yeah, let me follow on that. So on the medschooltutors.com website, mm-hmm. which I think is is great, by the way, just the the, the layout and design, uh, you guys have provided 77,000 hours of mm-hmm. tutoring, helped Correct. over 2,100 students. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, you report an average USMLE score increase of 33. That's correct. That's pretty enticing. Where, where does that uh, uh, metric come from? Well, I think what we do best as a company is really focus on the one-to-one individualized approach to medical education. One of the things that medical school doesn't do very well, especially in the first two years moving towards the USMLE step one, is teach students how to think clinically. It's a skill and it's not something you learn from a textbook. And in my experience, in in the experience of a lot of my co-tutors, that is a skill that we sort of had to cultivate ourselves leading up to that test. The irony is that if most of your lectures start with, let's talk about hemophilia, let's talk about congestive heart failure, and then you learn facts about that, that's great if you want to take a written test on that, but it doesn't help you when you have a 45-year-old woman in front of you who's complaining of shortness of breath. And that's a completely different skill. And it's a skill that's very difficult to cultivate in a classroom with dozens, if not hundreds of other students. So what we really focus on at Med School Tutors is working one-on-one with students and really cultivating that clinical approach to question taking, because that's the approach that not only leads to success on the USMLE shelf exams and beyond, but actually translates into good patient care. And there really is some magic that can happen when you're one-on-one with a student and with a tutor and can really dive deep into that clinical thought process, because that's the thing that's really missing from a lot of medical school, especially before the clinical years, and something that we focus on as a company. And I'd like to think one of the reasons why our students do so well. Okay, so walk me through it. I'm a, say, second year medical student around the end of April, early May. Mm-hmm probably four to eight weeks before taking my step one. Mm -hmm. Would it be useful to contact you guys now or is it too late? Oh, no, there's always time. And that's and that's because that we can focus on different core aspects of preparation for the USMLE, depending on how far out a student is from their test. When you get more than about six to eight weeks out, students are usually not in their dedicated study time. We focus more on content, sort of a foundational approach, making sure that the requisite knowledge in order to think clinically is present. But once students get into their dedicated study period, the truth is that most students have a pretty decent foundation. Everybody struggles with pharmacology. Everybody struggles with microbiology. Everybody struggles with some cardiac physiology, and surprisingly, actually, some of those site questions as well. And that's something that we can continue to work on as we get into that dedicated study period. But that's also the time when we change our approach from complete foundational learning to actual clinical thinking. Okay. And even if you're two weeks out from your test, there is still the benefit of sitting down with a tutor who's an accomplished clinical thinker and say, hey, How am I thinking about this? Is my thought process, is my skill of answering these questions appropriate? And actually, some of my students who have had the biggest gains have come to me with great foundational knowledge, but only two weeks before their test. And we boot camp them into appropriate clinical thinking and their scores just skyrocket. And how do you do that? So you, your first call, what what are you doing to assess a student's level of preparation and suss out what their needs are? 
Well, enough can't be said about our student relations team at Med School Tutors. They are masters when it comes to pairing students with the right tutor and really diving into a student's strengths and weaknesses and what they really need to succeed on the test. Every student who calls in has a long consult with one of our students relation team experts, and they really assess what they need to improve, where their weaknesses are, and what personality they would best fit with, and then make an individualized pairing with each student and a tutor to make sure that right off the bat, the pair matches and they get right to work doing great things. Okay. At that point, it's really up to the tutor to not only assess what facts you know and what facts you don't, but where in your clinical thinking are you tripping up or making a mistake? Because medical school tests go from A to B, you know, tell me this fact about heart failure. But the USMLE really says, okay, again, you have a 65-year-old woman with a cardiac disease, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes who's coming in with subacute shortness of breath over the past three weeks. Now what? And while knowing things about heart failure can certainly help you answer that question, tutors really dissect questions, multiple choice questions, line by line. What are you thinking now? How have you already fallen off track? How can I bring you back on track? And how can I get your thinking to really match mine? And once you do that, and once the student sort of recognizes the path that they're supposed to weave through a question, that's when you really start to see the light bulb go on and it starts to click. Once we get there, we focus on very common pitfalls in questions. Students fall into the same mistakes over and over and over across all of the students that I've worked with. So it's helpful to once we sort of nail down that question strategy to just clean up those little nagging mistakes that can just take easy questions away from you at the wrong time. Yeah. And do you guys have like, is it um, usually like a video conference type setup? And do you share your screen and walk through kind of like predetermined um, items that that you guys provide or or what's that process like? So when Med School Tutors was created, it was an in-person tutoring company in New York. And since then, we have expanded to the point where we are now across the entire country and across multiple time zones. Students and tutors are not necessarily in the same time zone. And because of that, we tutor, I think, about more than 90% of our hours on a virtual platform. It's a screen sharing platform where the tutor or the student will open up a multiple choice question or a textbook or a drawing platform in order to visualize issues and high yield points within a topic. And then the tutor will literally highlight and draw and bring a student step by step through a question, through a content area, through a diagram, and making sure that the way the tutor's thinking about it is the way that the student's thinking about it. Most of my sessions with students are two hours. We usually spend 30 to 45 minutes going over a high yield content area that a student tells me individually that they're weak with. And this is different for every student. I spend a lot of time on pharmacology. I spend a lot of time on micro, but every student has a different area of weakness. And I make sure to individualize my tutoring sessions to that student. And then about halfway through the session, maybe a little bit less, we then transition to multiple choice questions. Because while discussing the content is important, as equally important, if not more than that, is the strategy of going through questions. And we'd be remiss if we didn't spend actually the most of our time doing that, because then the content follows the more questions that you see. Yeah, I guess uh, today you can tutor me on uh, some (laughs) hematology, oncology stuff. Let's get into it. Sounds great. All right, let's do it. First question. An 18-year-old woman comes to her primary care provider because of menorrhagia over the last several years. She mentions that her menses have always been heavy, and she also experiences easy bruising for as long as she can remember. Her father has never had bleeding problems, but her mother has had similar problems with easy bruising. Initial lab studies show the following. Platelet counts of 205,000, prothrombin time 12 seconds, um, partial thromboplastin time 39 seconds, Of the following, which is the most likely cause of her symptoms? Is it A, factor V Leiden mutation, B, hemophilia A, C, lupus anticoagulant, the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, D, protein C deficiency, 
or E, von Willebrand's disease? And the answer here is E, von Willebrand's disease. Why is that the correct answer? Perfect. So I'm actually going to take a step back and look at this question from a 30,000 foot view. All right. There is no doubt that von Willebrand's is the correct answer here. But even before we discuss the content, I actually want to talk a little bit about the approach to this question. Okay. So when I work with students, I have a very specific question strategy. And for those who have worked with me, they'll chuckle when I say question strategy, because I sound like a broken record the more that I say that in the sessions. But it involves a specific flow through the question that necessitates active thinking in a way that tries to prevent some of the common pitfalls that students run into as they go through questions. And I'm going to talk through that a little bit before we get into the content of this question, because I think you can have the answer to this question after the first two sentences. The first thing I always tell students to do is actually read the question sentence itself. Yep, and that's derogatory. Exactly. And that's really important because you need to know what they're asking. A, because you need to be thinking in that direction, but B, because there are some questions where the actual question has nothing to do with the STEM and you just wasted 30 to 45 seconds reading through it in the first place. So when I was looking at this question, I would start with which of the following is the most likely cause of her symptoms, aka what is the diagnosis or the pathophysiology behind the diagnosis? Yeah. And right away, orienting myself to the kind of thinking that I'm going to be doing in this question. After that, I usually glance at the answer choices. I don't take too long. I just try to get an idea about what system am I working. So in this case, I'd look down, I'd see factor five, hemophilia, lupus, anticoagulant, protein C, von Willebrand's, and I'd say, okay, this is a hematology question. Maybe rheumatologic, but likely hematologic. So in the space of five seconds before I even start this question, I know I'm looking for a hematology diagnosis. And that's really helpful because in some questions where the presenting complaint is more broad or nonspecific, like fatigue, or shortness of breath, or abdominal pain, if you can glance at the answer choices and say, oh, this is hepatobiliary, oh, this is hematologic, oh, this is oncologic, right away, you can narrow down from the vast majority of body systems that you'd have to think through with a nonspecific complaint like fatigue. So once I have that in mind, I go back to the top of the question. And I tell all my students that you need to have a diagnosis in the first three sentences, or you're probably going to get it wrong or at the very least, increase your chances of making one of those mistakes that are so common among students. The US Emily is not trying to trick you. And they are always ascribing diagnoses to the epidemiologic cases in which they would fall normally. So what I mean by that is looking through this first sentence, an 18-year-old comes to her primary care provider because of menorrhagia. Okay, so there are a lot of causes of menorrhagia. My differential right off the bat would be something GYN or something hematologic. The good news is I already know this is a heme case. GYN is completely out the window. Mm -hmm. Menorrhagia in an 18-year-old woman has to do with mucosal bleeding, which I'll talk about in a little bit. The most common is von Willebrand's disease. So right away in the first sentence, I'm thinking von Willebrand's because I know it's hematologic. And epidemiologically, I know that von Willebrand's is the most common cause of heavy mucosal bleeding in young women. But I also need to make sure I'm thinking of a differential because they're not always going to give you the most common. So thinking about other causes of mucosal bleeding is really important. And I'll talk about that in a little bit at the end. Okay. Second sentence, she mentions that her menses have always been heavy, but she's experienced easy bruising for as long as she can remember. That sentence doesn't change my diagnosis of von Willebrand's disease. It's already what I'm thinking. But what it does tell me is that it confirms this is a longstanding problem, as it probably should be, assuming this has a genetic component to it. Her father's never had bleeding problems, but her mother has had similar problems, again, reinforcing a family history, a genetic component, an underlying issue. And then you get to the initial lab studies. I don't even honestly want to read them. I will because you should. But the most common pitfall that students fall into when answering questions is that they make a diagnosis in the last two sentences of a question, which is usually where you see the labs, the uh, radiology images, some weird buzzword or physical exam finding that they're not quite sure what it means. So they just completely lose track of what they were thinking and pick something else. Yep. So I tell every student I work with that if you're making a diagnosis in the last two sentences, you're going to get it wrong. So make it in the first two sentences. Now, looking at these labs, platelet count is normal. 
PT is normal. That's an extrinsic pathway. The intrinsic pathway maybe looks mildly prolonged at 39. That confirms von Willebrand's. But for students who aren't familiar with the coagulopathic changes that you would see in von Willebrand's, they might look at this and say, well, I don't really know what a PT of 12 and a PTT of 39 means. And I would say, who cares? You already have a diagnosis. And at which point, what's causing her symptoms? Well, I already know. I'm going to look for von Willebrand's. I see it. I match it. I move on. And that prevents students from changing their answers. And that's the right answer to this question. Students often say, well, that seems to me like if you're going to look and pick and match, you're going to potentially miss a question here or there if you look at, you know, 100 questions and decide you want to change your answer once or twice. Right. And I say, you know what, you're probably right. However, missing one or two really tricky questions over the course of four blocks, but not making the mistake of changing your answer 10 to 15 other times and getting it wrong is a trade-off I'm willing to take. And yeah. for the vast majority of students, it's okay to miss that one to two out of 40 in a block tricky questions to make sure you get the other 38 obvious ones correct. And always pick the easy, logical answer. The test is not trying to trick you. If you think it's von Willebrand's, it's von Willebrand's. Got it. So that that's a little bit of a question strategy. I won't go through it that completely for the rest of the questions, but I think that approach to thinking clinically is really important. And that's what a lot of students, even those who are really good from a content perspective, just really don't have at this stage, especially those who are scoring in the high hundreds or low 200s. Now, in terms of the content area of this pathway, I spoke about it a little bit, right? With we're thinking about bleeding and menorrhagia in women, you can think of it as an underlying bleeding disorder. We really need to think about hereditary coagulopathies. In my mind, hereditary coagulopathies are either deep bleeding or mucosal bleeding. And a couple of the questions we're about to do will actually get at that contrast, which is really important. Yeah. But for this woman, is this deep bleeding or is this mucosal bleeding? Mucosal bleeding, I tend to think of epistaxis or bloody noses. I think of gum bleeding. I think of menorrhagia. I think of petechiae. Whereas deep bleeding, I think more of prolonged bleeding after surgery, that young boy who falls and hits his knee and then has a hemarthrosis, things like that. That's deep bleeding. So right away, this to me seems like mucosal bleeding. And mucosal bleeding tends to be platelet problems. And when we think about platelet problems, we have to think about, is this a problem with platelet number or is this a problem with platelet function? Now, the good news in this question, her platelet count is normal. So right away, I know that this is not a problem with platelet count. It's a problem with platelet function. So right away, um, you can narrow this down if you hadn't already to a young woman with mucosal bleeding with a platelet function problem. That's von Willebrand's all the way. If you go through the rest of the questions, factor five or the rest of the answer choices, factor five Leiden is a hypercoagulable state, right? These are patients who usually present with DVT, PE, or stroke, especially women who are on prothrombotic estrogen-containing medications like OCPs or hormone replacement therapy. So that would be the sort of thing that you would look for in a patient with factor five Leiden, especially those with a family history of thrombophilia. Hemophilia A is a great example of that non-mucosal bleeding that I'm talking about. Hemophilia A from, uh, I guess, A tends to be mostly in boys because it's excellent to begin with, but B doesn't really have the mucosal bleeding, the petechiae, the epistaxis. It's the deep bleeding, the bruising, the joint um, hemarthrosis that you're going to see. So that doesn't fit this kind of bleeding that she's having, which is why I don't think it would be hemophilia A. Lupus anticoagulant is actually named anticoagulant because it prolongs the PTT in vitro. But the buzz uh, concept or the buzzword, the high yield concept of lupus anticoagulant is that it's actually prothrombotic. And that's something that you see in antiphospholipid syndrome. So that's an easy question on the board. So if you have a patient who is clotting and has a prolonged PT, it's lupus anticoagulant, you're done. Pick the easy answer. Protein C deficiency is a less common hereditary condition that also leads to hypercoagulability. More commonly, you see it in early initiation of warfarin without a bridge. Um, that leads to protein C and S deficiency and a almost paradoxical hypercoagulability before the warfarin kicks in and then you get that um, anticoagulated state that you're looking for. That's usually when you see more of a protein C, protein S deficiency, but there's certainly a genetic syndrome where you could see it as well. 
And that leaves and that leaves us with von Willebrands. Remembering that von Willebrand factor is a cofactor for platelets when it comes to platelet clotting is a good thing to remember because if you have abnormalities in your von Willebrand factor, then you're going to have abnormalities in platelet function, and you're going to have mucosal almost quote unquote thrombocytopenic like bleeding with a normal platelet count. Well, that was very good. Anything else about uh, von Willebrands? I think the Definitely the important points are to remember that it's the most common congenital coagulation disorder that causes bleeding, that it's a platelet adhesion or function problem. So you're going to see normal platelet counts. And a prime kind of epidemiologic test case is going to be an adolescent female with menorrhagia. Knowing that complex of ideas is is probably going to get you 90% of of uh, questions related to von Willebrand's disease at the step one level. Easily. And if you remember that you get a prolongation of your PTT because it's a cofactor for factor eight, you're already up to 95% of the questions. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's do some more. Next, an eight-month-old infant is brought to his pediatrician by his mother because of excessive bruising and blood found in both urine and his stool. She denies any form of physical abuse and noticed the bruising when he started crawling about a month ago. The bruises seem to take a long time to heal, and she does mention that the boy's father seems to bruise easily. Uh, Physical examination shows a well-developed male infant with erythematous and edematous knees bilaterally that produce pain upon palpation. Aspiration of the knee joint shows blood. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's condition? And the answer choices here are A, antithrombin deficiency, B, factor V Leiden mutation, again, uh, C, factor VIII deficiency, D, protein C deficiency, or E, a prothrombin gene mutation. And the correct answer here is C, factor VIII deficiency, because this kid has hemophilia A. Based on what we talked about before, this is probably a little bit more obvious Mm -hmm. um, as far as the answer goes, but how would you apply your question strategy? So first, which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's condition? Mm -hmm. I glance down, I see a bunch of blood-related diseases, so think hematologically as far as uh, uh, choice goes, and then I'm looking at the, the boy's age and noticing some other things uh, that you brought out or distinctions you brought out between mm-hmm. mucosal and deep bleeding and the big one, the big obvious one, I think, for probably a lot of hemophilia-related questions is going to be hemarthrosis. Exactly. So, and I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? So you look at the question itself, you look at the answer choices. Again, another hematologic question. Eight-month-old right off the bat tells me that this is likely a genetic or inherited condition, given that there is not a whole lot of time in this young boy's life to have developed anything acquired. When I think of excessive bruising and blood in the urine, again, you're thinking coagulopathy. Blood in the urine to me is deep bleeding. So in a boy with deep bleeding, hemophilia A right away is going to be your most likely diagnosis. You have a diagnosis by the middle of the first sentence. But you should also keep in mind that not everything presents textbook, and you should keep in mind that this kid could have Christmas disease, hemophilia B. He could also have some disorder of platelet function or number that could be causing this as well and sort of tricking you out. But my number one diagnosis right off the bat is, again, hemophilia A, just by understanding the epidemiology of coagulopathy in an eight-month-old boy. The fact that it started when he began to crawl is very typical for hemophilia because as a pediatrician, we're very aware of the fact that babies don't move a whole lot before they start crawling. Yes, they roll over and they're very adorable and they love tummy time and they lift their heads up. But before they start crawling, they don't really move on their own a whole lot. So this is really when you would expect to see the beginning of that bruising and the hemarthrosis that you wouldn't see up until this point. The well-developed male infant is an important point just because I want to make sure that he doesn't have some other larger genetic syndrome that's contributing to this. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but just to keep in mind that you want to make sure you're not missing something that the question's giving you. To talk about a pitfall in this question, erythematous and edematous knees bilaterally that produce pain upon palpation. If I was tutoring a student for this question, I would ask them, does hemarthrosis associated with 
hemophilia A cause pain? Are those knees painful? And a lot, I would expect an answer of, uh, I don't really know. Does it? And my response to that would be, who cares? Exactly. Right? Because <laughs> yes. at, at, that's the type of thing where students really get tripped up, where they're like, ooh, pain on palpation. Maybe they, maybe they broke a bone. Maybe it's infected. I, I don't know. Does blood cause pain? And it's that, that uncertainty that I don't know that for whatever reason I have seen in dozens and dozens of students, when they say, I don't know, all of a sudden the assumption is, so therefore everything that I'm thinking, everything I've thought so far must be wrong. Right. <laughs> if I can impress one thing upon the listeners uh, to this segment, it's just because you're not sure whether that's true in the diagnosis that you're thinking doesn't invalidate everything that you thought up until this point. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So you uh, recommend looking at the interrogatory first. I also recommend that. Mm -hmm. And then looking at the answer choices, glancing at them. All right. How important is it to have that diagnosis, though, before you really, I guess what I'm saying is, in, in my mind, I worry about biasing myself mm. in one sense by looking at the answer choices first. My own personal strategy that I, I found works for me was read the interrogatory first, then go back and try to answer the question without looking at the answer choices. I, I think we're probably trying to hit on the same sort of uh, yeah. benefit. Um, but what happens when you get to the rest of the answer choices after reading the vignette and they're not dissimilar like these are, but you've got, you know, hemophilia A, hemophilia B, maybe um, ITP, and some other distinct bleeding diatheses. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's probably not an easy question to answer, but how do you kind of overcome that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And first of all, the approach to questions for every student, you're right that there's no one size fits all. For the vast majority of my students, the strategy that I've discussed works perfectly fine. But there are certainly some students who fall into certain traps more than others, certain students who tend to change their answers more, who tend to get biased more, who tend to read too quickly, too slowly, not read the last two sentences. It's, of course, an entire spectrum. And and plus, I suppose, if you have no strategy to begin with, implementing <laughs> any strategy is probably going to be a huge boon in terms of your preparation and performance. Absolutely. And in my experience with the students, the more common mistake is not biasing yourself to an answer from the beginning, but the more mm -hmm. common mistake is not using the first two to three sentences to come up with a most likely diagnosis. Sure. Because what happens is students who do not think through differential diagnoses prior to getting through the first half of the question come up with a diagnosis in the second half of the question. And the reason why that's an issue is because if you think about a 34-year-old woman non-smoker who's coming in with shortness of breath and an x-ray that looks or PFTs that look obstructive slash emphysematous and you pick garden variety COPD because that's what her PFTs and her x-ray look like, then you're not thinking about the patient, right? You're just thinking about the x-ray. You're thinking about the PFTs. Exactly. So there is certainly some argument to be made that if students, if the student I'm working with is looking at the answer choices and biasing themselves to a certain answer and not paying attention to the question, then I'd have them stop doing it. But for the, ma the vast majority of students, being able to anchor at least one or two specific symptoms, right, systems right off the bat really helps them coming up with that differential in the first two sentences. Yeah. To, to your point about, well, what happens if you get to the answer choices and there are five that look pretty similar and you're not really sure what to do? Well, then the ship's kind of sailed at that point. It's very difficult. And the reason why I really, really harp on my students to come up with a differential and come to a decision as early as possible is because the rate of getting an answer correct, if you're deciding while looking at the answer choices, goes way, way down. Not only that, but the rate of changing your answer, even if you had a differential to begin with, goes way down. Or the rate of changing your answer goes up and ergo, the correct percentage goes down. So there are certainly strat salvage strategies of what happens if you get through a question and you're not sure what the right answer is. 
But the ideal scenario is having a decision by the time you get to the end of the question and then just picking it because the vast majority of the time students are going to be right. And I guess with these distractors too, so I mean, A was antithrombin deficiency, and that's antithrombin is a serin protease inhibitor. So if you have a deficiency in it, you're more likely to be pro-coagulant mm-hmm. and not uh, have a bleeding diathesis. Mm-hmm. You kind of choice B already discussed factor five, uh, Leiden mutations and then protein C deficiency, which was choice D as well. Those are both, uh, pro coagulant situations. And then E was a prothrombin gene mutation. So the prothrombin gene mutation is certainly one of the things that being, that's being increasingly recognized as, uh, a cause of coagulopathy in general. Um, yeah. Prothrombin um, is a precursor of thrombin um, that helps convert fibrinogen into fibrin, so really helps solidify those secondary clots. If you don't have that prothrombin, then you can imagine that you have issues with prolonged bleeding afterwards. So patients who have a prothrombin gene mutation do tend to be coagulopathic. So then the question is, well, how do you know it's not that? And the answer is because it's rare. Yeah. On the USMLE, they're looking on for the most common there is meant to be no ambiguity in these answer choices because you could think of the legal ramifications of an important test like the USMLE having answer choices that could not be argued argued by an expert panel as having a clear answer. So the USMLE always hangs its hat on epidemiology. And so much of the answer choices rely on epidemiology, I think, to an extent that a lot of students don't recognize. Exactly. So a vignette that presents, for instance, this vignette um, with some modifications could uh, present a patient who could have a prothrombin mutation or hemophilia. That's correct. Then the question is, without other differentiating information via lab studies or, or whatever, within the content of the vignette, then mm-hmm. you have to go on the most commons. And that's why it's anytime you see X is the most common cause of whatever, that's really important in your study and preparation to to remember, I think, probably down to at least the second most common, you know, disease in whatever category or cause of this symptom or, or whatever. But I, I interrupted you. What else uh, were you going to say? No, that's absolutely correct knowing that a prothrombin gene mutation is rare in that in a little eight-month-old baby who has signs of deep bleeding, that's hemophilia A unless they tell me otherwise. Just like in a young child with nephrotic syndrome, that's minimal change unless they tell me otherwise. Um, nephritis would be post-strep. Leukemia in a patient under five is ALL. You yep. can actually make those quick associations and then actually have the, you know, challenge the question, prove me wrong, because right. that's going to be the most common thing unless the question tells me otherwise. And that sort of approach not only improves speed on tests, which so many students continue to struggle with, but also improves correct answer choices because if you are challenging the question to prove you wrong, rather than trying to figure out, well, is this correct in this specific situation, you're just going to get more right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So next is an eight-year-old boy who comes to the office because of red spots on his eyes and inside of his mouth for two months. Medical history includes epistaxis, which has decreased in frequency and severity over the years. His mother also says that if he gets a cut, it seems to bleed for an abnormally long amount of time. Physical examination shows conjunctival and buccal purpura. Laboratory findings are normal, including a platelet count, prothrombin time, activated partial thromboplastin time, and administration of DDAVP, which is desmopressin, does not improve the patient's bleeding time. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A. Bernard Soulier syndrome, B, Glanzmann's thrombosthenia, C, hemophilia A, D, von Willebrand's disease, or E, hemophilia B. I won't give the answer on this one because these choices do make this a little more difficult question. So walk me through it. Going through the question strategy again, 
most likely diagnosis, you look at them, okay, we're thinking about coagulopathies again. So going through the first sentence, an eight-year-old comes to the office because of red spots on his eyes at the inside of his mouth. Not really sure what to make of that. Red spots kind of sounds like bleeding, especially in the context of a hemophilia question or a coagulopathic question, excuse me. But I'm going to go to the second sentence and read that medical history includes epistaxis, which is decreasing frequency and severity over the years. So epistaxis, red spots, now I'm thinking platelet disorder, right? I'm thinking mucosal bleeding, which to me says platelets more yep. than the deep bleeding of the hemophilia from the last question. But I have to keep in mind that platelet number and platelet function are both things that could be an issue in this patient. So I'm looking for signs of thrombocytopenia versus poor platelet function. Mom says that if he gets a cut, it seems to bleed for a normally long amount of time. That's the bleeding time, that's platelet function. So we know that there is a platelet function defect. Although, I mean, it could be a number of defect as well. That just confirms that we've got a platelet problem. Right. His exam shows conjunctival and buccal purpura, doesn't add anything. Laboratory findings are normal, including platelet count. Boom, we have a platelet function defect right away because now I know that the platelet count is normal. And morphology also helps knowing that the platelets themselves are normal, at least normal in size. The PT is normal. The Ristocetin test is normal. That's really important. And the PTT is normal. Oh, yeah. I think I forgot to read that part. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is key. And we'll talk about the Ristocetin test a little bit. And then they give DDAVP, which does not improve the patient's bleeding time. So what we have here now is a platelet function problem that does not respond to the addition of von Willebrand. And that's really important because of the platelet function problems, looking at A, B, C, D, and E, Bernard Soulier is a platelet function problem. Glanzmann's thrombosthenia is a platelet function problem. Hemophilia A is not. Von Willebrand disease could be seen as a pseudoplatelet function problem because von Willebrand's interacts with platelet plugs. And hemophilia B is not. Interestingly enough, of A, B, and D, which are platelet function problems, two of them are going to respond to essentially extra von Willebrand's, right? Would or would have a normal or an abnormal Ristocetin test. Okay. So this is one where actually knowing those tests is really important in order to differentiate is this going to be A, B, or D? So going through those answer choices, we know that Bernard Soulier has an abnormal Ristocetin test because in Bernard Soulier, you're going to have an absence of that receptor and the Ristocetin test, which essentially looks at platelet aggregation with the help of von Willebrand's without that present, then the Ristocetin test would be abnormal. So with a normal Ristocetin test, we know that Bernard Soulier, it cannot be the answer because the von Willebrand fracture, at least in this question, seems to be doing okay. But the von Willebrand disease, interestingly enough, responds to DDAVP. That's a treatment for von Willebrand disease because you right. don't have enough von Willebrand. You add the desmopressin or DDAVP, vasopressin, they're all pretty synonymous. And that causes release of von Willebrand's from those weeble Pilati bodies, everybody's favorite name, from the endothelium. You get more von Willebrand's factor, and that helps improve the platelet aggregation and bleeding time. So with a normal Ristocetin test and a lack of response from DDAVP, you can actually pinpoint where in the platelet function pathway we're having an issue. And Glanzmann's thrombosthenia is not the most commonly tested platelet function problem. But what it is, it's an absence of a receptor, the glycoprotein 2B3A, um, which is really an in integrin aggregation receptor on platelets. And it's stimulated by ADP primarily, but it can also be stimulated by collagen, thrombin, et cetera. So if you have an abnormal platelet function because there's a lack of 2B3A, evaluation and management of von Willebrand is not going to fix that. And Ristocetin is evaluation of von Willebrand. DDAVP is treatment for von Willebrand. Bernard Soulier and von Willebrand disease fall on that spectrum. If those are off the table, then the only other platelet function defect we have left by elimination is glanzmans. Got it. All right. Um, that was a lot. That was This is a more complex question. But, it is. But being able to think through platelet function 
versus platelet number is a really key concept on the USMLE, on the shelf exams, during coursework. And understanding the two major platelet glycoproteins, 1B and then 2B3A, as well as von Willebrand disease, will really help you evaluate these questions when you're like, oh, this is platelet function, now what? Got it. Why does this kid's um, nosebleeds, why, why do they improve over time? You know, that's a really good question. And the honest answer is, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, um, I don't either. I'll probably just edit that out because I was yeah. like, I was hoping maybe you had <laughs> something on that. Yeah, no, but it, it, even so, I think it's important to recognize that I don't know why Glanzmann's thrombosthemia has decreasing severity and frequency over time. But that really shouldn't change how I'm thinking about this question in terms of a platelet function problem. And I think that's uh, another great example about how you don't need to understand every fact that they're giving you in the question to be confident in your thought process about that question, thinking that this is a plate function problem. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to chime in here to help answer this question before the gunners among you maybe rushed off to Google to search for it. It's a particularly, it was particularly difficult to find, so I figure I'll just share it with y'all. Basically, when you have Glanzmann's thrombocytopenia, there are different levels to which the genes for the receptors on platelets can be mutated, and there will be some working receptors present, even though they're less efficient. This means that there can still be clotting occurring over time, and that there will be a clot to form. It just may take a lot longer than a person with a normal platelet. Okay, back to the show. All right, let's move on. Now we have a six-year-old girl brought to the emergency department because of a rash. She has also had two episodes of nosebleeds at school in the past two days. Her mother states that the child is generally healthy, apart from having a cold three weeks prior. She takes no medications, has no recent history of travel, and no known drug allergies. Physical examination shows a purpuric rash on her face and non-palpable petechiae. There is no organomegaly lymphadenopathy, or joint pain. Laboratory values show hemoglobin and white blood cell count are normal, but her platelet count is low at 20,000. Which of the following is abnormal? A. Coagulation studies. B. A peripheral blood smear. C. Serum vitamin K. D. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Or E. Prothrombin time. And the answer here is a peripheral blood smear. All right, walk us through it. Yeah, so we can go through this question a little bit quicker because I think this is sort of the last part of the concepts. So it brings it home that we've been talking about so far. Yeah. Again, question strategy, which of these is most likely to be abnormal? I'm looking at testing. But again, the testing seems to be more coagulopathy blood studies. So again, I'm thinking uh, hematologic. And then a six-year-old comes in because of a rash, too nonspecific. I'm just going to read the next sentence. She's had two episodes of nosebleeds. Okay, now I'm thinking, again, mucosal bleeding, so platelet number or platelet function. However, the differential for healthy children who come in with coagulopathy, you have to think of leukemia, right? You just have to. You can't miss it. She's been generally healthy. She had a cold three weeks ago, remembering that Viral syndromes in children are often a setup for immune dysregulation can be helpful because then you can think about, oh, is she having some autoimmune cell dysfunction or autoimmune hemolysis because of this prior cold? Again, thinking platelet function or count, if I'm thinking autoimmune post-cold platelet number or function, ITP is actually the first thing that comes to mind. Sure. Yep. Um, no meds, no travel, no history, no drug allergies. Great. Shows a purpuric rash on her face, non-palpable petechiae on lower extremities. Again, to me, that says thrombocytopenia. There's no organomegaly, no lymphadenopathy, no joint pain. That's really important because it brings leukemia lower on my differential. Lab values show a normal hemoglobin and white count. Again, those it would be very rare to have both of those be normal in a leukemic patient. So again, I'm thinking a platelet problem. Her platelet count is low as 20,000 thrombocytopenia, and a child, post-cold, ITP, done. So which of the following is most likely to be abnormal? Well, I would rephrase this question to make sure that I'm anchoring myself appropriately. In ITP, 
which of the following is most likely to be abnormal, knowing that this is a platelet number problem. Which is why having that diagnosis before re-examining the answer choices is so important. Absolutely. Because and re-centering yourself on what the actual pathophysiologic change is, which is an abnormality in platelet number. Right. And that's important because your coag studies are going to be normal. Answer choice A. This does not involve your PT. It does not involve your PTT. That's out the window. Skipping to over to question to uh, answer choice C, your serum vitamin K level. Well, this has nothing to do with vitamin K. A lot of students right. will be like, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Sure, let's pick it. And that is completely the wrong thing to do. Vitamin K has nothing to do with platelet number. We're done. We're going to move on. ESR. This one's tricky because I think a lot of people expect this to be an inflammatory disorder. But the truth is that autoimmune cellular hemolysis does not necessarily cause an elevated ESR or CRP. That's just something to keep in mind that it's not always going to be, it's not a very sensitive finding for this kind of thing. The ESR should be normal. So that's down. And then the prothrombin time, again, that's more of a coagulopathy, clotting cascade type of problem. Again, I'm thinking platelet number. So that's definitely not going to be at the top. That leaves you with peripheral blood smear. And again, knowing the concept that when your serum is lacking or your peripheral blood is lacking certain cells, your marrow pumps out those cells as fast as they can. It's true mm -hmm. when you're anemic, you get a reticulocytosis, you get an uh, increase in your red blood cell size because reticulocytes are large cells that are more immature. In ITP, you tend to get large platelets because your marrow is pumping out megakaryocytes as quickly as it can. You're also just going to see fewer platelets, which is yeah. why your peripheral blood smear would be abnormal. Just to go back to the ESR and D, mm -hmm. my guess is that um, is included as a distractor, as an attractive option, because the mention of her purpuric rash uh, on her face with non-palpable petechia on both lower extremities. That's correct. I suppose if you're not being a very active reader, you might um, make an association between purpura, which are usually which are palpable in uh, Hanok Shinlan exactly. purpura and uh, maybe latch on to that, I suppose, is, is, is a reaching diagnosis if you're kind of lost at this, this point of the question. But I think like you've kind of demonstrated thus far, having a strategy can help avoid those sorts of um, desperate attempts at a point. <laughs> and I think that is a perfect example of what not to do, right? Yes, so exactly. if you are halfway through this question and you're not actively thinking, you see purpura, non-palpable, something on the legs, you think HSP, like, okay, so what does HSP present with? You know, you pick D. But HSP doesn't fit at all with, exactly. <laughs> with your first two sentences, right? Right. That the right. history, the epidemiology, it, the epi would be okay, but the history doesn't fit, right? HSP doesn't present with epistaxis, it presents with abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea, right? Right. Followed by rash. So, you know, or intussusception, right? I mean, something like that. It doesn't present like this. And it certainly doesn't present with massive thrombocytopenia, less, you know, 20,000 or less. Yeah. So that's a great example of not relying on the second half of the question to make a diagnosis because you're going to get it wrong. Absolutely. All right, let's do one more. All right. An 86-year-old woman comes to her primary care provider's office because of fatigue, altered mental status, and ataxia for the past three months. Physical examination shows conjunctival pallor and loss of lower extremity proprioception. Laboratory testing shows a hemoglobin of 8.9 and an MCV of 103. A blood smear shows macrocytic erythrocytes and hypersegmented neutrophils. Which of the following lab values will also most likely be elevated? A. Ferritin. B. Hemoglobin S. C. Factor V. D. Methionine. Or E. Methylmalonyl-CoA. And the answer here is E. Methylmalonyl-CoA. This one was easy for me because <laughs> I'm giving a lot of people folate all the time mm -hmm. um, uh, as an OBGYN. So I'm, I'm conscious of the uh, potential diagnosis in, in those who get folic 
acid supplementation without uh, the concomitant other thing that they would need to prevent some of this patient's symptoms. But I'll let you go through this question. Absolutely. And I really like this question because I think it's a great example of having a broad differential at the beginning and then narrowing it based on the data that's presented to you within the question. Yeah. I also really like this question because the boards adapt to average student knowledge. And if 99% of people would get this question right, if E was, what's the diagnosis vitamin B deficiency, then they're going to ask you one step deeper. And that's really important to know because what I tell my students is that when they're using their question banks or using multiple choice tests and the question is 80 plus percent right, I say, hey, you got to know a step deeper because someone's going to see that and someone's going to see this is too easy. We need to ask something different. So it is so rare nowadays on the USMLE, on shelf exams, to see a first level question about vitamin B deficiency and folate because megaloblastic anemia, everybody and their mother could tell you that it's probably B12 or folate. It is one of the most known buzzwords in the USMLE. So if you know, or if you're doing questions, if you're studying and you feel like, wow, literally everybody knows this, go a step deeper. Learn a little bit more about it because they're going to ask you that second level question and that's what's going to get you. And that's why I also like this question. Yeah. So going through question strategy, which of the following lab values will most likely be elevated? Well, that's good to know because now I'm thinking to myself, okay, I need a diagnosis and I need to know something about And I look through the answer choices and honestly, okay, they're lab values. There's not much I think you can infer from this other than it looks biochemy and I'm going to move on. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah. 86-year-old woman, that's important, knowing that we're not thinking of pediatric illnesses, prevents, presents to her PCP because of fatigue, AMS, and ataxia. This is a really broad differential, right? So thinking of fatigue, obviously blood disorders, cancer comes to mind. 86-year-old people might also just be tired at baseline. That might not be pathologic. We don't know. Altered mental status is going to be abnormal. How many ways could a geriatric patient become altered? The answers are pretty much endless. Yes. Um, the high yield point that I would point out is never forget toxicology or polypharmacy. It is yep. such an issue in geriatric patients, but because it is not an quote unquote internal problem, a lot of students actually forget about it. Remember that polypharmacy is a huge cause of morbidity and even mortality in this age group. And anytime you see nonspecific symptoms, think pharmacology. Ataxia is a little more concerning. Ataxia out of these three is the most specific. And because of that, I'm going to focus on ataxia. When you have a patient who presents with multiple nonspecific complaints, focus on the one that has the smallest differential. Fatigue could be anything, AMS could be anything, but ataxia is a neurologic problem. And when you have neurologic problems, you are thinking to yourself, is this brain? Is this spinal cord? Is it peripheral nerves? Is it neuromuscular junction? Is it muscles? There are five locations in the nervous system, right? So right off the bat, because of the altered mental status and ataxia, I'm thinking central nervous system because peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction muscles doesn't present with alteration in mental status. So ataxia and altered mental status is more specific and really helps me think is this brain is the spinal cord. And the things that come to mind right away are, well, could this be normal pressure hydrocephalus? She's altered and ataxic. I haven't heard anything about urinary problems, but I'm keeping my mind open to it. Or is this the more common vitamin deficiency that we hear about so frequently? But also keeping in mind, altered mental status in ataxia could be stroke. It could be ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. It could still be tox. It could still be really any number of central nervous system lesions that could present with an alteration in gait, proprioception, et cetera. But it helps me localize it a little bit because fatigue, AMS could be anything, but AMS and ataxia tends to be central. So thinking about the physical exam, pallor and loss of lower extremity proprioception. Well, the lower extremity proprioception localizes me to the spinal cord, right? To those dorsal columns really was what I'm thinking about. And when you have dorsal column localization combined with pallor, which is anemia, there's really only one thing that can be. So when I'm thinking of a central lesion that 
presents with dorsal column involvement and anemia right away, this is B12 or folate deficiency. Oh, wait, but it's central, so it has to be B12, right? Yep. So exactly. I think a lot of students forget that when you get to the dorsal columns, you're not thinking folate anymore. It actually only is B12. So right yeah. away, I have a diagnosis. And then I kind of walk through the rest of this and challenge the question to prove me wrong. Hemoglobin is low. That's consistent. MCV is up. That's consistent. Macrocytic erythrocytes and hypersegmented neutrophils. They're giving hmm. it to you. They're giving it to you. But even if you didn't remember what the smear looked like, who cares? You have an answer. Okay. But now they're asking you about the biochemistry, which of the following lab values will most likely be elevated. And remembering that B12 is a really important cofactor for the synthesis of two common biochemical compounds is really important, right? So the first is succinyl-CoA and the second is methionine, less important than what they're actually made from, which is methylmalonic acid or methylmalonyl-CoA and Methionine, it comes from homocysteine. So anytime you have a patient, in fact, the diagnostic criteria for B12 deficiency is not actually low B12. Certainly you'd expect to have a low B12, but many patients with B12 deficiency actually don't have critically low B12 values. Exactly. If you have a patient who presents with a concern for B12 deficiency and they have an elevated methylmalonyl-CoA, you have a diagnosis right there. Exactly. Um, and this is one of those questions where I stress the importance of going a step deeper on questions or concepts that are so ubiquitous in USMLE studying, because if more than 80% of students know it, they're going to stop asking it. Absolutely. So looking at ferritin, so uh, I guess it's important to note ferritin levels tend to be low in those with iron deficiency anemia, but you'd also expect to see the blood smear to have uh, microcytosis and hypochromia. The hemoglobin S, that's just the sickle cell hemoglobin, and there's no indication that this patient has signs or symptoms of, of sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. uh, factor five is the clotting factor that we have beat to death uh, <laughs> thus far today. So that leads me to this. If I didn't know, I would be between... Um, methylmalonic acid and methionine. Mm -hmm. I guess, what if I'm stuck between those two as, as a student? I'm like, oh, I know it's one of these. I know one is elevated uh, prior to the synthesis of B12. I know this is B12 deficiency, but I just can't remember if her methionine or methylmalonic acid uh, levels will be elevated. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to give you a magic bullet here, but unfortunately, sometimes the test does just ask you facts. And there's no way around not knowing, oh, shoot, is the methionine the precursor or is it the product? Is the methylmalonyl-CoA the precursor or the product? What I will say is that if you are stuck between two very good-looking answers, the most important thing to do is pick quickly because in my experience, students tend to perseverate on one or the other and expect some stroke of brilliance to hit them in the next two minutes and say, right. oh, okay, I've remembered now. If I just stare at this question for another five minutes, I'm going to figure out what the right answer is. The truth is they don't. And if you get it down to a 50-50, the rate of students getting the answer choice correct, I should actually do a, a real study on this, but in my yeah. anecdotal experience, if students get it down to a, two answer choices and just honestly don't know, the percent correct is completely independent of how much time you spend on it. So if you spend two seconds, so. if you spend yeah. two seconds on it, if you spend two minutes on it, it's 50-50. So pick it, get it wrong, get it right. Just do one of them because you've got 39 other questions to answer or 30, exactly. 43, depending on the test. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I would say that's actually the most important thing. Sometimes you're going to get a 50-50 and be stuck. It's okay. If you get half of those right, you're doing all right. All right. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure. And as traumatic as it was to have to go back and think through some of these <laughs> blood disorders. Uh, it's what makes medicine fun. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back next time with a brand new hematology oncology episode on the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series podcast. If you've listened to the end, thank you so much. If you're not driving, please do me a favor. If you're listening on the iTunes podcast app, 
just go to the bottom right ellipsis mark on your iPhone and click the share episode and let your friends and colleagues know about what we're doing on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Tumblr, whichever social media platform floats your boat. And if you've been listening for a while and like what we're doing, we would love your feedback. You can just go to the ratings and reviews tab on the podcast app. Click tap to rate and give us five stars if you like what we're doing. And right below that, write us a review, give us some feedback, and let others know how helpful this podcast has been for you during your study time. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Happy study. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album The Mind Sweep. <laughs>